Dear Father, we just thank you for uh, being able to gather here and open up your word and study your word together, God. I thank you so much for uh, the girls and guys around me and just their dedication to you and your kingdom, God. Uh, we ask that uh, the Holy Spirit works in their hearts as they hear, God, your truth. And if anything we say tonight is not of you, we ask that it falls on deaf ears, Lord. And we thank you so much for your son and your kingdom and your work you're doing through this ministry, God. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Here we go. Okay, so we are in Mark 6, um, verses 6 through 30. And so we have, okay, so, okay, so context is key. Whenever you're studying the Bible, especially in the Gospels, like we said last week, it's easy to separate stories from each other that were meant to be read together. So here is kind of a timeline of what we've been through in Mark that is key to understand the passages today. Um, so we start off uh, in, in the last verses of Malachi and also in Isaiah 40. You have this promise of God going to send um, somebody before him that's going to come as his witness um, from the wilderness and preaching his name, preparing his way. And then you have 400 years of silence. So God promises, promises this person to come before him and prepare the way, and then there's nothing. His people are left waiting, um, waiting for God to fulfill that promise. And then Mark opens up, the first couple verses of Mark, um, opens up with saying, hey, this promise is realized. It's like calling them back. They would have immediately noticed, like Mark is basically opening up Malachi and just starting his gospel from the last verses of Malachi, saying this promise is being realized in John the Baptist. Like, he is the messenger he was talking about. And then you've got, in Mark 1.15, Jesus saying, Repent, the kingdom has come. And so Jesus is saying, That messenger, he's pointing to me. I am God that was following him. I have come to you guys. Um, and then pretty much from the first chapter of Mark all the way to where we are today, uh, Jesus has been actualizing the kingdom. So in everything that he's been doing, miracles, preaching with authority, um, he's been saying, like, I am the kingdom. Everywhere I go is the kingdom. So he's been demonstrating that, and Mark has been making that the focus of his gospel thus far, kind of hurrying us along, pointing to Jesus as Messiah. Um, and then you've got in the 22nd verse of chapter 2, this idea of new wine and old wineskins. Jesus is pretty much uh, debunking their wrong theology, um, saying you can't, um, put what I'm saying about the kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, can't mix that with your view of what the kingdom should look like. So he's kind of doing away with and calling out their bad theology. So then uh, in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus calls the 12 disciples, and he, he calls them, and he says the purpose is to one day send them out to preach uh, the repentance and the kingdom is here. So basically calling them to one day send them out. Then in chapter 4, uh, the first half of that, You've got the parable of the seed and the sower, uh, just talking about how when the word is preached, there's different ground. Uh, people's hearts are in different states, uh, ready to receive the word or not ready. Their hearts hardened or opened, um, and kind of what that looks like and how you can tell. And then last week, if you were here, we talked about four different stories that seemed to have nothing in common, uh, but Drew broke down the common thread in all of them, which was Jesus' power over and then he had four things. Does anybody remember what those four things were? Anthony. Power over nature. Say it loud. He had power over nature. He had power over demons. Mm -hmm. He had power over death. He had power over sickness. Exactly. So, basically focusing on the power of God that has been 
realize throughout the first uh, five or six chapters of Mark. Um, and then next week we're going to be talking about the feeding of the 5,000 and what that looks like concerning the kingdom of God. So that brings us today to two stories that Mark kind of sandwiches one around the other. So you have the calling of the 12, then you have an odd insertion of the death of John the Baptist, and then you have the coming back of the 12 reporting to Jesus what, uh, what they have done. And so as we're going through this, you need to be thinking, like, why would Mark, first of all, put these stories here in the larger context of where he's going? Um, but why would he put one story in the middle and just break off the one and then continue it at the end? So be thinking about that. So now we're going to jump into this text. Uh, in this first part, you've got some interesting instructions that Jesus gives. So be thinking about, of all things, why would Jesus do this? What's the significance of this? So Arnisha is going to be our reader tonight. Uh, could you read just verses 6 and 7, please? He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Okay, so Mark starts off uh, this, <clears throat> this passage by saying that Jesus sends them out. Like I said, that's the fulfillment of God's purpose for calling the twelve. So Mark's immediately going like, okay, this is the purpose that they were called to send them out. Now is the time that Jesus gives them this authority. And notice uh, the authority that Jesus gives. In order to give authority, you must have authority. Um, so he's right there calling Jesus king, going with the theme he's been running through this whole, this whole time, is Jesus, the king that has authority, is now giving authority to his followers to send them out. Um, and then he mentions sending them out two by two, which is weird. Why doesn't he send them all out? Why doesn't he send one to cover more ground? Like, why two by two? Uh, there's several reasons for this. Um, one is it's just good ministry practice. Uh, whenever you're doing ministry, it's good to go with two or more because you can encourage each other, you can rebuke each other, you can correct each other. Um, you have different gifts according to the Spirit that can use to build each other up. Um, there's also safety reasons if you're going to areas that you don't know. So there's that. You see that, um, like in Acts, Paul goes with Silas uh, and Barnabas. And so you see that out just kind of throughout the Bible. Uh, also in Deuteronomy 17, the law of Moses commands that uh, on the order of two or three people, uh, that makes a sound witness. Um, and so there's that, the, the law of Moses commanding that. And so they recognize that here and that kind of obeys that law. And then later in Mark, we're going to get to kind of a more complete answer and reason for the two-by-two two, uh, sending out. So go ahead and read verses 8 and 9. For his instruction. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Okay. So it's interesting that Jesus gives these instructions. Like, if I'm, if I'm one of the twelve apostles, I'm thinking, like, okay, Jesus, that's awesome, staff, sandals, cool. Okay, so uh, back in chapter 4, a couple weeks ago, Jesus, you know when you kind of cast 2,000 demons out of that guy? Like, yeah, I want to know how to do that, because um, I'm not sure how that goes. Or, yeah, how about that storm you calmed? Like, that'd kind of be a good idea to tell us how to do that. But instead, he tells them what to take and what not to take, where to stay and where not to stay. Um, so it's pretty interesting. Now, uh, the reason he does this is uh, a couple things. One, it's a, it's a short tour, um, so... He calls them to, he sends them out to the villages in Galilee. Um, so it's a, it's a local tour. He's not sending them out all over the place. So there's no need to take a lot of things. Um, 
But one of the one of the main reasons he does this is he calls it's it's a call to focus on the character of the mission, um, the character of God's kingdom, which is not as the world would have it, but as a kingdom that is preaching humility and an upside down kingdom. Um, so I think Matthew six uh, verses. 30 through 33 kind of give a good picture as to why Jesus, kind of the principle behind this. And it says, uh, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father uh, knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So he's saying, like, depend on me. Depend that I'll provide for you. He's like, don't go expecting to make a profit out of this. Don't go expecting to do all these things to come as if you're um, coming as an army to conquer. No, he's like, practice what you preach, which is repentance and the kingdom of God. Um, he's saying, go as the poor to the poor. Um, so he's, he's preaching, or he's telling them these things to go and go humbly, and go depending on him and his people. Um, and then, uh, yes, so that's that. Um, verses 10 through 13 now. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people. Okay, so they're told to, whenever they go into town, they're told to stay there and not go to different places. Uh, they're also told not to stay at a place where their message is rejected. And so the reason for this is the urgency of their mission. Uh, the, the message of repentance and the kingdom coming is a very urgent message. It has a seriousness about it that they have to either accept it or reject it. Um, there's no time for them to argue and try to win back or logically convince somebody to accept their message um, that doesn't have the heart right then to accept it. So, so they're saying, Jesus is saying, like, trust me that I'll provide a place for you to stay, but also we don't have time to argue. It's a short tour. It's not, it's not you know, going places where you're going to stay and, and talk them about it. Um, it, it goes hand in hand with the shaking off the dust of their feet, which is kind of an odd and unfamiliar phrase to us. Um, there's a lot of things that that would have signified back then. It's a Jewish custom that whenever they would come from a heathen area, a non-believing area, um, into the, back into the Holy Land, they would shake the dust off of their feet as a sign of God's judgment upon that people. Um, so basically saying, like, we came from an unclean area, God's judgment be upon you for going against Yahweh. And so that was kind of the idea of that. Um, so that he said to do that whenever they rejected or didn't listen to their message. Well, what was their message? It was preaching repentance. And so what, what are they rejecting? What are they not repentant of? Um, Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 29, kind of gives a great explanation as, like, the message that they would be not repentant of. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? So, um, what they're not repentant of, what they're rejecting, the reason for the shaking the dust off of their feet is they're rejecting the idea of this new kingdom. They're rejecting the new covenant that God is bringing, that Jesus is bringing. Um, and so, like, doing that, he says, has so much more seriousness. Like, if in Moses' time, if somebody died for rejecting the law of Moses, how much more will somebody be punished for rejecting the Son of God? Um, and so, that that's basically drawing upon what Jesus was talking about on preaching the new wineskins, the wine and new wineskins um, in chapter 2, verse 22, saying that they're trying to, to reject my new way. They're trying to mix what they believe into what I believe, and it doesn't work like that. You, can't, you have to either accept what Jesus is preaching or be rejected. There's no middle ground. There's no your way and God's way. It's solely what Jesus is preaching in this new kingdom and new covenant. Um, and then also the, the shaking the dust off of their feet, um, it also allowed the disciples to kind of move on. It was, it was freeing for them if somebody didn't reject, uh, if somebody did reject their message for them to be like, okay, I did what I did. And, and God is handling the rest. Like, this is between you and God. I've done my part. Um, and so, and also, you can see that Paul kind of goes at that in Acts 15, or Acts 18. Um, and notice they preached what Jesus preached. Uh, as in Mark 1.15, they, they preached repentance and the kingdom of God. They didn't do anything off of their authority. It was all his authority. He's king. Um, it's also no, uh, interesting to note that None of the gospel accounts say that Judas preached the uh, repentance in the kingdom any less. That Judas was given any less authority to cast out demons and to heal. Uh, just interesting to note that, considering what we all know that he does later on in the gospel. Okay, so now that we've looked at that first part and the spreading of the kingdom of God, uh, now Mark slows down. He's been going a million miles an hour. He slows down one of the few times in his gospel in the first half. And he, he introduced, reintroduces a character from the first chapter uh, who was promised in Malachi. It's John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Um, and he's looking back. He's flashing back on what happened to John the Baptist. And so before we, we get into that part, there's two new characters that are introduced in this narrative that we kind of need to have a grasp for. You've got King Herod Antipas uh, and his wife Herodias. Two... Uh, Two awesome characters that we're going to have a short history lesson about. Okay, so uh, King Herod Antipas is son of Herod the Great, who was the ruler um, of Judea in the time of Jesus' birth. And so once Herod the Great died, the Romans divided his kingdom between uh, three of his sons and his sister. So uh, Herod Antipas, being one of his sons, was uh, given uh, Galilee in an area called Perea. And so that's kind of what he's control over. Um, so he was actually a tetrarch, meaning a ruler of a quarter. So King Herod Antipas wasn't really king. He was a tetrarch. He didn't have rule over a territory. He had a rule over a fourth of a territory, which will be important later on. Um, and he's married, married to the daughter of King Eridus of Arabia, who um, uh, King Eridus in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that, when he's trying to uh, preach in Damascus, he's the one that orders the seizure of Paul. And so he has to be, uh, Paul has to be lowered down through a window in a basket because King uh, Eridus wants him out. He wants him captured. Um, then you have Herodias, our second character. 
uh, was married to Herod Antipas's half-brother Philip. And um, Herod took a trip to Rome and stayed with Philip, his half-brother, and actually fell in love with Herodias, who would be his half-niece. And uh, so his first wife, or his current wife, caught wind of that. And she's like, you know, I'm not having any of that. And so she schemes for them to take a trip up near her dad's territory, uh, King Eridus of Arabia, and basically escapes. And it's never a good idea to go to your in-law's territory when he's king and you're cheating on his daughter. Never a good idea. But they do that, and so King Herod Antipas is almost completely wiped out if it wouldn't be for a Roman general to step in. And, uh, and then later, Herodias also pushes for King Herod to uh, go for the title king, which uh, Augustus denies him of and eventually exiles him. So that's kind of the relationship between Herodias and Herod. Uh, these are the people that John, it's kind of his fate, really is in God's hands, but in this situation is in their hands, and you can see how that doesn't turn out well. Um, okay, verses 14 through 20. Okay, so right off the bat, we have Mark calling Herod king. And remember, he's not king, he's a tetrarch. And so uh, none of the other gospel accounts call Herod Antipas king. They refer to him, his, his actual title, tetrarch. So right off the bat, Mark is ironically giving him the title that he always wanted, but that led to his demise. So he's like, you think you're so great, I'll call you king. Um, and he does that five times throughout this little story. Um, and then... Here, uh, people ascribe three identities, three different identities to Jesus. They say he's either a prophet, he's Elijah specifically, or Herod says that he's uh, John the Baptist raised from the dead. So those are three interesting uh, people that they ascribe uh, Jesus to. And so the reason for prophet uh, would have called back uh, a passage in Deuteronomy 18 where Jesus promises a prophet, although they don't quite obviously understand that Jesus is God as well. Um, Elijah, remember in uh, the last verses of Malachi 5, uh, God says the, the prophet he's going to send is, is Elijah, which uh, Jesus says and Mark says that is actually John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah. So that's where they get Elijah from. Um, and then, it, like, why would... Uh, Herod say that he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. It's pretty interesting. Um, this is the first time that the concept of resurrection is mentioned in Mark's gospel, and so it's good to have an understanding of what uh, culturally, back then, what was the idea of resurrection. Now most people, well not most people, a lot of people think that uh, back then they were just given to all these superstitions and so they believed that, oh yeah, somebody could be raised from the dead, and, and that was a common belief. Uh, New Testament theologian N.T. Wright speaks a lot on this subject and, and basically says that that 
nobody believed that back then. Like nobody believed somebody would be raised from the dead. Um, so it's interesting that Herod does. Jews back then believed in an end time resurrection for all people. They believed that between creation and Jesus uh, coming back and judging the living and the dead, that was when everybody was going to be resurrected. There is no in the midst of time somebody being resurrected. Um, and so that's kind of interesting. Um, <clears throat> probably had some superstitious belief uh, they did back then, not Jews, but, well, maybe some Jews, um, but had some superstitious belief that um, the spirit of somebody who's dead could come back in somebody else's body and kind of haunt, haunt them of sorts. Um, and so we have that, that there with Herod believing uh, he's resurrected. And then in verse 17, it starts off with four. So Mark goes, Herod believes John the Baptist, or Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected, and then it says four. So he's kind of, from verse 17 on, going to give hints as to why Herod would believe that. Um, and we see here that Herod has mixed feelings when he hears John. He's perplexed, yet glad to hear him. Herodias, not so much, pretty much hates the guy. Um, so verses 21 through 30 are Nisha. Did the rest of it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went in, went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Mm. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Okay, so here we have Mark describing this party. It says it's his birthday that Herod's uh, throwing. He's got uh, three different social classes, or three different, yeah, represented, not social classes, but three different um, groups of people in Galilee uh, represented here. They're all rich, they're all noble. Uh, it's Commentators say that it's an all-guys party with girls dancing. Uh, they're probably all drunk, so... Uh, just good people there. Um, so you have Herodias, um, knowing probably that her husband Herod is drunk, uh, sends her daughter, so her, uh, Herod's stepdaughter, to go dance for him and the other men. So mom of the year award right there. Thanks, mom. Um, so you have, and, and he's pleased by it. He's pleased so much so that he promises, hey, I'll give you anything uh, you want. I'll give you up to half my kingdom, which dad of the year award there so you got a great couple i'm pretty sure this is when jesus says to leave your mother and father this is what he had in mind um <laughs> just kidding <laughs> but okay so you have all that going on he promises um her half his kingdom which is kind of weird why would he promise that um it's really not to be taken literally uh in esther the book of esther and in first kings you have uh, different kings promising up to half their kingdom um which really just means I'll give you anything, um, so not literally half their kingdom most of the time. Uh, it's also, again, ironic that half of his kingdom, he's not really a king, so what does he have to give? It's not much. Um, 
so uh, that's kind of where uh, he has this party. And so then, um, let me check my notes. Okay, so yeah, so he said he was bound by his oath and his fear of the crowd, um, which, so going back to he was perplexed and yet glad to hear John, he's, he seems to be always not sure who to believe, not sure which way to go. His soul is kind of um, going different ways, and he always has mixed feelings. And so he was exceedingly sorry, as Mark says, to kill and to order the execution of John the Baptist, um, which is interesting because he wasn't sorry enough to not do it. Um, it said he was bound, again, by his oath and the fear of the crowd. And he calls John a holy and righteous man. And so it's interesting to think that this isn't the last time we're going to see an authority figure um, call for the execution or order the execution of a holy and righteous man. Um, so that, that's a common thread that you see that obviously is a huge theme later in Mark. And so now we can kind of <clears throat> fully understand why, Mar or why uh, Herod would believe some of some sorts that Jesus is John. Um, the Baptist raised from the dead is because he had these mixed feelings, right? He wasn't sure to kill John or not. He was sorry when he did. So the superstitious belief of somebody's spirit being able to come up in somebody else mixed with the weight of his conscience and the guilt that was on his heart when he killed John, you could see how he would be like, wow, like something miraculous is happening. They all, they all saw that. Jesus wasn't just another guy, but something was happening here. So it must be John who I killed because, you know, he must be come back to haunt me. So that's kind of why Herod would believe that. Um, and so Herod, Herod's heart is, is an interesting um, ground for, for the word to work on. Uh, so it brings us back to the parable of the seed and the sower that Jesus talked about. Like, I would describe uh, Herod's heart as the soil among thorns. Like he was glad to hear it at first, but then he was caught up in all the desires of the world and all the, the people around him, and he, it choked his desire for the word. So just kind of interesting how you can kind of see that as Jesus describes it in the parable of the seed and the sower. Okay, so in, this, in these two stories that we see Mark has put together, uh, the common thread really is, is God's kingdom versus Herod's kingdom and the kingdom of this world. Um, and so what we're going to do here is, is kind of see the, the con contrast between Herod's kingdom and the kingdom of God. And so what, uh, what did you guys see as far as contrast between the two kingdoms? What did you guys see in the text? Like what were some, some attributes uh, that, that's described of God's kingdom and the sending out of the twelve? Um, and then what are some of attributes of Herod and his people and his kingdom? I mean, uh, Herod's kingdom, as you said, wasn't even legit. Yeah, exactly. So you have, um, <clears throat> you've got Herod's kingdom here, and you have Jesus's here. And so you have, yeah, Herod, who's, who's not even a king. Mark ironically calls him king five times in this passage, or refers to his kingdom. But he's not even a king. He has no real authority. So that says king and authority, which contrasts, as we know, Jesus' kingdom is the only true kingdom. He is the true king. He gave, uh, the, the first part of that passage, he gave the disciples the authority, and you can only do that if you're a true king. So he's the true king with authority. Okay, what else? Yeah, yeah, his, his Herod, 
his kingdom is evil. It, it's pretty much characterized by, uh, you've got drunkenness, which, um, you've got lust, and you have ultimate leading to death, death of John the Baptist. So you can see his kingdom is characterized by that, and then uh, God's kingdom is characterized by healing and restoration. You see, uh, the disciples were sent out and they accomplished like healing and restoration in Jesus' name. So you have healing and restoration on Jesus' kingdom side in contrast with drunkenness, lust, and death. Okay, what else? Okay, yes. So I'd say like... <clears throat> That points to the fact that Jesus' kingdom, his people have a purpose, right? They're, they're taught to preach repentance and bring the kingdom to earth. So they have purpose and they're always on mission. Where Herod and his kingdom, he's always wayward. He's always going for what the crowd wants and he's not sure what to think. So he has a wayward way of going about things where Jesus' people are, have purpose and they're on mission. Okay, what else? What about, what about Jesus' instructions to the twelve? Like, why? What did that signify? When he told them to bring, like, so little things, what was that? Yeah, exactly, humility. So his kingdom is poor and humble. And where Herod threw a party of all the rich and proud people. And then one more thing I noticed that's going to be squeezed in here. I'll leave this up here because this is squished. Um, so Jesus also, his, when he sent the 12 disciples out, he told them to trust him. And where Herod's kingdoms, specifically his relationship with Herodias, is marked by deceit. So you have Jesus' kingdom that's poor and humble, characterized by trust, uh, brings healing and restoration. His people are on mission and they have a purpose because he's the true king that gives authority. And you have Herod's kingdom that's full of the rich and the proud. They treated each other with deceit, um, full of drunkenness, lust, and death. They're a wayward people because he's not the king and he has no authority. And so that's the common thread we see um, throughout the two stories that, uh, that Mark kind of lays out for us. Now why the question still remains, like, why does he have the sending of the twelve? So, sending out. And you have the story of John the Baptist being beheaded in the middle. Like, why does he split those two up? What's the, what's the point of that? And one, one major thing I saw was the, the point to sandwich the story of John the Baptist between these two is to show uh, the cost... and the reward of discipleship. So the cost, the cost of discipleship being um, just that. There is a cost. Like you can't follow Jesus and there not be a cost. It's like saying, uh, I'm going to go to school and not take classes. No, it doesn't work like that. Like that's part, that's in the definition of going to school is taking classes. So it's impossible, even though we try to separate the cost of discipleship with discipleship itself. No, it's a part of the definition. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer obviously wrote the book Cost of Discipleship. Um, 
he says, he calls it costly grace. There's no other kind of grace, there's no other kind of discipleship than one that costs you everything. Um, and then the reward of discipleship uh, being that you get Jesus and in that the spreading of his kingdom. Like you're a part of something way bigger than yourself. That is the truth. Um, and the spreading of the kingdom you see uh, clearly marked here, uh, Mark talks about here in that with the death of John the Baptist, 12 more rise up in his place. Um, I'll end with this. And Kierkegaard, uh, he, he has, is quoted on this referring to the spreading of the kingdom when somebody dies. He says, The tyrant dies and his rule ends, but the martyr dies and his rule begins. So, so Mark in these two stories contrasts Jesus' kingdom with Herod's kingdom, sandwiched uh, the sending out of the disciples with the beheading of John the Baptist in order to show the cost and reward of discipleship to the true king. Okay? So now uh, Scott is going to, um, after a short break, Scott is going to go ahead and answer, uh, among other things, he's going he's to talk about, okay, this authority that Jesus gave the disciples, this authority that we have, like what does that look like? If we're sent out to be disciples with authority, what, what does that even mean? Um, and he's also going to talk about at what point do we shake the dust off of our feet? If we're, if we're presenting the gospel to somebody, if we're teaching them, at what point do we, do we say, okay, God, like not totally abandoning them, but I, I kind of have to, have to take a step back here. So Scott is going to go ahead and talk about that. Take a few minutes, get up, go to the bathroom, get a drink, do whatever. Um, I was really thankful for, for that help and, and to see this on the board. I'm going to take a picture and send it to Drew. He's going to be all excited. Um, so here's, here's a question that he, that he left off with is, you know, Jesus gave authority to his disciples. And it was, this is kind of the first time he's, he's uh, you know, up to this point, he's been doing the ministry. They've been following along. And now he's saying, okay, it's, it's go. It's sink or swim time go and do this, and, and he gives them authority. I've, and, and when I was reading through this and studying through this, that, that line really jumped out at me. Like, okay, what did, what did he mean? Like, what, how did he give them a, the, like, take, I mean, what, like, what did they, what did they, how did they receive it? And, 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 and how would they have processed, okay, I'm not you, Jesus, so I don't know if I can do what you, what you did. And and actually, this is a bigger this is a bigger thing. Um, so we, we think about that. We go, okay, we're not Jesus. I can never do what Jesus would never do what Jesus did. And yes, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but in reality, there, there's there's actually an authority that that we were meant to have that we lost, and it all starts in the garden, just like everything else. Um, it started in the garden. So back back in the garden, God creates, right? He creates. All of creation, and it's it's amazing. And then he creates men and women, and they're the pinnacle of creation. And then he says to them, "Okay, you are to commission them. This is their this is their role as as kind of the pinnacle of creation, the only the only the only thing created in God's image." And he says, "Okay, you are to go out and you're to rule and to reign for his for 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 my for my glory." God says, "So you're you're to go out to wherever you go." You you take my glory with you. You 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 rule in such a way as if I were would would be ruling. You you act as if I were acting. You fix as if 
fix things as, as if I were fixing things. You, you begin to think and, and love the way I would love. And so, and so Adam and Eve, this is, this is what they were sent to do. And, and which is, so this authority that God gave them was, was meant specifically to be from God to man to, to creation. And so when Genesis 3 comes along, and the fall happens, you see why this is such a big deal. Because it goes from, from authority that was given to man to, to lead creation, all of a sudden the serpent flips, actually Adam, flips things over and, and shirks his ability, um, usurps God's authority by giving authority to Satan. So, so it goes from man to creation, now it goes from, serp, from serpent or creation to man. And so in that moment, Adam gave authority away. Authority that he was given to rule and to reign in such a way that would bring glory to God. And so from that point on, from Genesis 3, we see immediately God walking in the garden, walking, pursuing His people. And, and immediately God starts this redemption and restoration process that, that um, sees its culmination and that is revealed fully in Jesus coming. And so Jesus comes, um, and, and so because man lost or gave authority to Satan, and, and because of that, death ruled and reigned. Um, so it needed to be a man to take it back, but not just any man. It needed to be a man that would rule and reign in such a way that would bring glory to God wherever he went, and, so, and that he would act in such a way as if God were acting, that He would love in such a way as if God were loving. And so, the Bible actually describes Jesus as the, the second Adam, as the true Adam, the one that, that, that Jesus was who Adam was supposed to be. And so, Jesus comes and He fulfills that. And, and so, we see this verse in Romans 5, Romans 5 verse 17, says, For if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, so Adam comes and because of Adam's sin, death reigns. But now Jesus comes as the better Adam, as, 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 the, as the better man, and he comes, and, and because of him, life reigns, and, and righteousness reigns um, so much more than even what Adam did. So Jesus comes on the scene, right? He, and he does, and so think about this. Jesus does in the wilderness, do we have it up here? Somewhere? Anyway, somewhere right here. Uh, he does in the wilderness what Adam couldn't do in the garden. Right? So Satan comes to Adam and Eve and they fall for his temptation. Temptation. Um, Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, he rejects him. He, he lets him know very quickly. He's, not, he's here to bring glory to God. He's here to live by God's word alone. He's here to represent God. He's here to, to let life and righteousness reign the way God has wanted it to reign from the beginning. And so right off the bat, Jesus comes on the scene and, and, and seals Satan's fate right then and there. 
takes it back and, and then begins to act out the kingdom of God, which is really wherever God rules and reigns is where God's kingdom is. And so wherever Jesus goes, um, he, he, he commands authority and he takes back, um, takes, takes that from Satan and, and, and reclaims it for, for God's glory. So his ministry becomes about preaching the good news of the kingdom, about calling people to repentance, about giving sight to the blind, healing sickness, casting out demons. And, and, and Jesus gives this kind of authority to His disciples, and they, they're there to preach the same message, call people to, to the same repentance, care for the physical needs of the people, as if God were doing it, as if God were there, and caring and loving and preaching and, re, and calling to repentance in the same way God would do it. And, and he gives this authority to the disciples. So this isn't just like, oh, Jesus, this is out of the blue. You, all of a sudden, you want to give authority to those guys, those fishermen? This is, a, this, is a, this is a power move of Jesus to say, this is, this is going back to the way it was always meant to be. That, that man and, and woman were supposed to rule and to reign and to lead and to serve creation and everyone in a way that brings glory to God. And so, and then Jesus proves his authority, proves that he can give this kind of authority by what? How does he prove that he has this, this authority? Okay. He, he certainly does all healing people, casting out demons, all these things. But if he doesn't raise from the dead, then he was a good guy that did a lot of miracles. But so his his death and his resurrection actually sealed like perfectly. This is this is the king. So, but notice notice Mark's description of Jesus's sending out the disciples is he he doesn't fo- he doesn't really tell us how they do. He doesn't really tell us how successful their mission was. It's really more focused around. Um, it's not focused around the success of, of the mission as much as it is the character of the mission, the kind of mission, the kind of, the kind of authority in which the disciples and ultimately all of us who, who've placed our faith and trust in Jesus, all of us who, who are seeking God's redemption and restoration, like this is the kind of ministry that we're to have. So, so when you wonder, okay, what does it mean to be faithful where you are? You, you're, you're at college, you're studying for a, a degree, you're thinking about future, about where you want to live, what kind of career you want to have, what, what kind of, um, you know, what, whatever. Whatever it is you want to do. As you begin to think about this, those things, um, are you thinking about the mission? Are you thinking about um, what Jesus has for you? And so this mission that he, that he, that he sends them out is, is one of selflessness and service, right? Selflessness and service to proclaim the gospel and to care for people. So here's a question. I don't know if it's already up there. But when you accepted Jesus, did you accept His mission? When you accepted Jesus, did you accept His mission? And if you're like me, you accepted Jesus and you didn't understand the mission, 
you maybe heard about the implications of it. Um, but, you know, I was young, and so I accepted Jesus, and I accepted what, um, what I was told He would bring into my life, which is life with God eternally, which is, you know, a more healthy life, which is, uh, you know, I, I'm, I can't worship God, I can't come to God unless I have Jesus. And so I understood all these things. And, and it's as I've gotten older that I begin to realize, wait, yeah, I, I have a ministry now. Like, having this covenant relationship with God isn't all there is. That's actually the first part of it. There's a whole other part. Um, there's a whole other part to, to, to what God has for us. So, so God is Father, and He invites us into this relationship with Him. He invites us into a covenant relationship with Him. And by accepting Jesus' death and resurrection as, as redeeming us from sin and death, which is the two things that you and I can't fix, we can't, we can't, um, we can't conquer, we can't overcome. And so by accepting Jesus' death and resurrection and believing and trusting in that, sin and death are covered. And then you and I accept this new identity. He's, he's bought you with a price. He's, he's paid for your life. And so, and so you've been invited into this relationship. You've been given a new identity. And out of that identity in Christ, you, you have a heart that wants to follow God and obey God. And so God is Father, inviting you in, um, but He's also King, sending you out. So God is Father, inviting you into relationship, but He's also King, sending you out with responsibility. And, and, and what we see throughout the Bible is that, that He sends us out with authority to do the same things that Jesus did. In fact, He even, he even said that to His disciples, you're going to do greater things than Me. And it's like, what? And, and so he's, he's pointing to a day when God's Spirit would come and the presence of God would, would dwell in his, in his church and His church would be the temple. And wherever the temple goes, God's presence and His activity and His kingdom go with it. And so you and I are the physical body of Jesus wherever we go. And so we have this responsibility. He is King sending us out with His, with his authority to... To, to represent Him, to point people to Him, um, and to reconcile people back to Him. And, and we actually have the power to do that. He gives us the power to actually make that kind of eternal difference. Um, so this, this, this next section of verses I want to read is in 2 Corinthians 5. But... Maybe you've, maybe you've heard these verses, maybe you haven't. But when, when I read them, and when you see them on the screen, or when you turn to, when you write this reference down, I want you to, I want you to know, like if you've accepted Jesus, these words are for you. These words are about you. Like this is, this is the kind of ministry you've been given. This is, what, this is part of um, what comes with this covenant relationship, is, is kingdom responsibility. So here it is, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Huge verses. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So, so there you go. In, in, in Jesus, we've been given a new identity. He's a new creation. The old has passed away, thank goodness. 
And behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us what? Gave us a ministry of reconciliation. This is the ministry that we've been given. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses, which is a fancy word for sin, against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He's entrusting to us. This is the same language of He gave them authority. He's entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. He believes He's given us the authority to represent Him and the power to actually make this happen by His strength and power, not, not our own. And so verse, verse 20, Therefore, we are what? We are ambassadors for Christ. Making, uh, God making His appeal through us. So, how's the ministry going? Like, how's your ministry? Um, what, if, if you were to write down and describe your ministry, how would you describe it? How would you... Okay, so here's, here's the ministry I feel called to. Here's who I'm ministering to. Here's, you know, begin to... And, and listen, when I was 19, 20, 20, year old, 20 years old, it was, um, it was not happening. It was, there were signs of it. I was beginning to not live for myself and beginning to ask questions. Okay, God, what is it you want me to live? Is really when I was 20, it was when this all kind of took off for me. Um, is when I finally saw Jesus for who He was and willing to submit my life to Him. And, and literally the first thing I committed to do was read one chapter of the Bible a day for a hundred days. That was when, I was, when I turned 20 years old, that's, that was my promise to God. I, I'm not going to promise anything else other than I'm just going to read one chapter a day for 20 days. So, so some of you may be there, like new at this and going, okay, I, I don't even know what the Bible says. I don't even know who God really is. And, and so you're starting there. I get that. And others of you have been at this for a little while. And you know, you, you, you have a relationship with God and, you, and, you, um, and you, you know that you're called to, um, to, to minister to others and to help others know, know Christ. And, and so I, I, I challenge you, write out a description of your ministry and it, it'll, it'll force you to think and be honest. Um, I don't have one. You know, that could be a real honest answer. I uh, No, nothing. Just no. Just a circle and an exclamation. Whatever. And so, but be honest about it. Because God, is, God isn't up in heaven going, oh, you don't have one? Oh, I had no idea. No. Um, no, He knows. And so, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a point. So, but it, it, but it's, it comes from this recognition that that as you stay in relationship with God, as you stay in covenant relationship with Him, that He, that he invites you into um, as Father, that He that recognize that He also has responsibilities. He has people He's put in your life for a reason. He has um, gifted you with very specific things to do, to do things to bring Him glory wherever you go. And you have kingdom responsibility. Um, responsibility from the King always follows, okay, always follows relationship with the Father. 
responsible responsibilities that we are to carry out from the king are flow from a relationship with the father that's the way that's the way God set it up that's the way it's supposed to be so I want to talk just the last few minutes um, four things that I noticed from this text that kind of really jumped out at me about about what it means to be faithful to Christ's mission because when you accepted Jesus you accepted his mission and so what does it mean to be faithful to Christ's mission so here's here's four things first one is is seems to be made clear that they're to they're to call people to repentance so first one is calling people to repentance um, and and this is not easy or uh, often fun and, and here's the idea it's it's recognizing like my own way of trying to figure out life is broken from the very beginning the moment I say I'm go- the moment I start with I it's broken and 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 the same is true for others roommates friends family and so this isn't a you're wrong and I'm right this is a you're broken just like me and you and I can't figure this out and and, and so repentance is this idea of of literally the word means changing of the mind it's this idea of um, turning and doing a 180 I used, to, I used to act and think this way, and now I, I need to repent. I need to turn my actions and my thinking to, to God's ways and God's truth. And so um, being faithful to, God's, to Christ's mission is calling people to repent and turn to Him and turn to His, his way and his, and his truth. Second one. The second one is um, loving holistically. Loving holistically. What, is, what does holistically mean? What do I mean by that? Okay, every area. Okay, the, the, we, don't, we don't go to Africa with starving people and hand them a Bible and say, eat on the Word of God, and then walk away. That's, that's just, there's, that doesn't, that, you may feel good about yourself, um, but that that doesn't work. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to care. Jesus, you know, He tells them, He sends them out, and it's clear that, that they go out and they are um, casting out demons, which is a very oppressive thing for, in, in someone's life, and, and healing disease and sickness. So He was calling them to not just preach the gospel, not just um, preach a message, give out information, but to care for the whole person. Body, soul, spirit. This is what God's called us to do. It's to care for the whole thing. This is what Jesus does. He cares for the whole. So loving holistically. Third is, is discerning when God wants you to hold on and when, and when He wants you to let go. And, and this is kind of seen in this phrase, shake the dust off your feet. And Bo did a great job kind of helping us understand culturally what that what that phrase was about what that word's about where it comes from and you know there, there's there's a lot of similarities that we can take that we can take from this kind of the um, the universal principles behind this are, are there's some things we can apply maybe the difference is um, there, there seemed to be an urgent time constraint on the disciples and what Jesus was having them do okay go preach to these villages, come back, 
Um, Jesus' ministry was three years. So there, there seemed to be this like, get the message out quick, walk in. If they don't receive you, shake the dust off, go to the next. If they receive you, stay, preach the gospel. Heal. So, so there seemed to be this time constraint. And, and not, that, not that there isn't an urgency that we have, but we have the luxury more so than what Jesus was calling his disciples specifically to do. We have the luxury to actually do life with people, to live and to see, to walk through the messiness of life. And this is where it becomes muddy. Like, okay, um, as you know, um, everyone is normal until you get to know them. And then they're not normal. And then they have issues. And then they're messed up people. Messy. They're messy people. And and doing life with messy people, you get dirty and you get messy and it's hard. And so some could use this phrase as like, oh, I'm just going to shake the dust off. It's getting too hard. Yeah, I'm out of here. No, I don't know if that's what Jesus is calling you to do, to quit because it's hard. Um, but there is, there may be a point where you recognize you can't, you can't coerce people or threaten people or manipulate people or convince people to die to themselves and to, to live for Jesus. You, like, you and I can't do that. And if, and if a person is con- constantly rejecting and constantly pushing and constantly, you know, and if you, if you sense, okay, God, I'm, maybe I'm not the person and maybe, maybe I'm actually making it worse. I've seen this happen sometimes in family relationships for whatever reason, you know, certain family members won't hear from other family members, no matter what they say. Um, and so maybe it's a, okay, I'm going to trust God with them, and I'm going to stop preaching at them all the time, because it's actually pushing them further and further away. And maybe there's a point where you say, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to trust you with them, and I'm going to help me to just learn how to love them. And maybe I need to love them from a distance, but maybe I just need to figure out how to love them and show Christ's love to them, so that invite them into my life so that I can... Um, maybe someday challenge them with God's truth. Um, and so those two words for me are huge to help me understand when, when do I walk away? When do I stay? It's, am I doing a good job of inviting them? And just like God did with me, just like God's done with you, have I, if I, am I inviting them into a relationship? Like invite, inviting them into my own life? And then if so, then I, they usually are open for me to challenge them with truth. Um, but invitation and challenge are really helpful to discern that. And then lastly is devotion to Christ's mission or devotion to His mission. Is, uh, it, it, we are to be devoted to it more than, more than ourselves, more than oneself. Um, and you, you see this in the disciples. I mean, they, they were to go and to walk. They were to go and not to gain anything, from anyone, but simply to give this message, and and uh, and I've seen in ministry, I've seen in life that there's a healthy way to do this, and there's actually an unhealthy, disconnected way that I've seen this happen. Um, and the healthy way of saying I'm all about the mission and not about myself is 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 living a life of repentance and trusting God for for His goodness and for His provision in your life. Like that's a healthy way to do this. Like I, you know, I, I'm I'm called. You and I've called to be repentant when when God points out areas of our life when others 
I'm be, to be in submission to others so they can call me out. Um, and that is a healthy way to, to be about the mission. Not to, not to gain something from people, but to simply live your life with people and pointing them to Jesus and trusting Him for all your needs. The unhealthy, disconnected way I've seen is ignoring my own issues. Yeah, I know I've got these issues, but you know what? It's, it's not really about me anyway. It's about everybody. It's about preaching the gospel to everybody and ignoring my, my own issues because I'm all about the kingdom. Well, maybe you need to deal with your issues. Maybe you actually your ministry would um, thrive, um, whatever that means, if, if you dealt with some of your issues. Maybe people would trust you if they knew that you were repentant and that you were willing to submit your life to others. And, and I've seen this in ministry when, when, when there's a temptation to kind of receive this power of, all I, all I'm, I'm about the kingdom, I'm about preaching, and, and, and to ignore kind of deep personal things, and I don't think that brings glory to God. But, um, this, this call is, is clear that we're to serve, um, to serve without getting anything, with, to serve without wanting validation, without wanting monetary rewards, without wanting ad- accolades to, to who you are and to what you bring. And, um, th- this didn't seem to be, um, the goal of Jesus wasn't to send them out so they could become famous <laughs> at all, at all, at all, at all. And so, as you think about like your life and your career and your ministry, um, you're going to see it through the eyes of Jesus. Like, like we said last week, you, you're not that big a deal, and neither am I. And 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 I love this picture. Uh, there's a guy named Saint Francis of Assisi. Um, he's a he's a dude that lived in the early 1200s. He's actually um, didn't grow up really much of a Christian. He was, he was in the war, got injured, came back from the war to live at home. His parents were fairly, fairly rich. Um, and he lived at home, and he was sick. He got sick because of his injuries, and it got pretty bad, and he got kind of crazy, and um, people thought he was going nuts. But through this process, he began to, to just surrender control um, to God. And, and he began to see, um, like, the rich religious people and the poor people. And he began to see this dichotomy and he began to just realize, wow, like I'm part of that problem. Like my family is rich. And so he literally starts trying to give away all his, his, his family stuff. His parents get ticked at him and, and take him before like the court or the, 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 the people in charge, which happen to be religious people. See, this was kind of at a time when, when the church was at the head of the table. Like they were, they were kind of the, um, at the head of the table politically, sociologically. And so his family takes him, my son is going crazy. He's giving away all of our stuff. And, you know, we've given him so much. And, and uh, kid you not, the story goes, Francis takes all of his clothes off in front of everybody, hands them to his parents and says, thank you for everything you've done, but I'm out. And he turns and walks away. Um, and that's how he kind of, yeah, that's a, that's a drop the mic moment. Um, except it was drop the clothes moment. Um, but he, he goes on, and he, he goes on to vow a life of poverty, 
and eventually ends up attracting other people that were kind of seeing the same thing. This, the religious powerful were, were in charge, and, and they were rich, and they were power-hungry, and, and, it, and it wasn't good. And, and so he began to kind of dedicate his life to just serving the poor and serving people, and, and um, he, he intentionally lived his life that way. Uh, and, and so his philosophy, which I th- think is beautiful, is he kind of pictured everything with an open hand. Whatever God gives me, that I'll, 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 re- I'll receive until God wants me to, to pass it on to somebody else. Like every gift that I give, I, I don't hold on to as, 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 as mine. But whatever God gives me, I, I hold out. And, and if God wants me to have it, I keep it. I hold on to it. But when God wants me to give it away, I give it away. And it's just this open-handed life that whatever I receive, I carry with an open hand so that at any moment when God asks me to give it back or give it away, I'm ready because I'm not holding on to it. And I love that picture, and I think this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus is, is kind of establishing as, as, as somewhat of the character of the mission that, he is to, that we are to have, that we are to be about. That it's not about us, it's about, it's about Him. And so if I could encourage you guys to begin to take ownership of this fact that when you get, into, when you get done with school here and you get your degree and you move on and you, you start a career or whatever, um, that you, you begin to take ownership of the fact that at the end of your life, you're not going to look back. You're not going to be super proud of all the money you made, all the possessions you possessed, um, all, all the, the accolades you received from whatever. You're not, you're not going to look back on those moments and, and be like, that's, that's my legacy, all that money. It's awesome. I'm, it's going to go all to my grandkids, and they're going to waste it. Crap, you know. Um, no. So what, what, you're, what you're going to look back on is, is did I live my life in a way that, I, I represent Jesus wherever I went, that I live to help people reconcile to Him, that, that there are going to be lots of people spending eternity with God because I just surrendered my life to Him and let Him use me as a vessel in their life. And I mean, the, the things that you're going to look back on in your, at the end of your life are things that are going to have e- eternal fruit. Those are things you're going to be excited about. Those are things you're going to be most joyful about and most proud of. And, and so if, if you can begin to think with that end in mind about the kind of jobs you take and people you marry and places you live and, and activities you're involved in, um, I guarantee it'll be a full, exciting, um, incredible life. Deal? All right. It's, it's, you, say, you said it, and I have it. Um, so let me pray <laughs> God thank you for your word I thank you for this, this powerful example and I thank you for uh, just seeing the, the contrast of, of authority and kingdoms that, are, that, that Mark is really helping us see um, that, that the kingdoms of this world are, do not accept and are not about the kingdom of God, your kingdom. And so God, I pray that we would begin to see our life through your lenses and that we would see this upside down life 
um, of Jesus as, as the only way to live. And, uh, and God, may you receive all glory and all praise through, through our life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so remember, next week, no table here, but come hang out, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll take you out. It's going to be awesome. We'll take you out in the middle of nowhere yeah. in Stillwater, and we'll drop you off. You'll be with, it, it's two by two. Hey, oh, it's two by two. I just, I just made the connection. Oh, yeah. Anyway. All right, next week. See you. Food. What? Paying for you?